Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu. And my name is Jennifer Lee, and we are pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Today, we have the privilege of talking to Dr. Evelyn Sue. She is the division head of the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, uh, at Seattle Children's. She's the medical director of the liver transplant program there. She's also the program director of the Transplant Hepatology Fellowship, which we talk about a little bit in the episode. And she's also an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine. She may have almost convinced me to want to do transplant hepatology. Yeah, it was a very uh, persuasive argument. Yeah. I mean, in her bio, it says, I love my job as like the first thing in her bio. So that's pretty, that's pretty. You don't pretty, love your job? I mean, I do. I thought we all. But I don't write that in my bio. <laughs> anyway, this is our very first episode about liver transplants. Mm-hmm. And first of many, most likely, but I think today we're just talking about like an intro to liver transplant. Yeah, just a little overview Talk about how how someone becomes a liver transplant specialist. Tologist. We have a great time talking to her and uh, enjoy the show. Enjoy the show. So, Dr. Sue, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bow Sounds. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, this is our first episode about transplant hepatology, which is going to be great. But before we get into the content, we like to get to know you a little bit. So um, for our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? This is so hard. You know, I take part in an intern retreat and we have to do six word memoirs and this is even harder than six word memoirs. And so... (laughs) I actually worked on this one for a while. So I am an amateur croissant maker who loves children and dogs. Okay. Ooh. That's great. I feel like I actually that. wanted to make croissants. I tried it one time. Well, no, I didn't try it. I looked at the recipe and got overwhelmed by the folding and just let it go. The amazing thing about croissants is that like, it's a nice exercise because I think most of the time we're always trying to find an excuse to be like, I'm a failure. And like croissant, <laughs> making croissants is like a really nice opportunity to practice being like, oh no, like all of these things can go wrong. And so there was a masterclass by Dominique Ansel, I think his name was. Anyway, he's like, he's the creator of the um, Cronut. Oh, wow. And it was a very nice video that kind of like was the beginning of like trying to do a croissant. Like I mean, it was, and it's been definitely a journey. Many, so, many, many failures. Amazing. When we all get together, when the social distancing is over, yes, we will be asking you to put on a masterclass for us. Absolutely. That's again 2021. No. <laughs> At my house, we're going to be making croissant, but you have to stay for like four days because it's a multi-step process. I'm oh, fine with that. I'm fine with that. that. So just watch TV and make croissant. Yeah, that sounds good. My house in Seattle. <laughs> all right, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. All right. So speaking of TV, one thing that we've been asking everybody is to tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you read, listened to, or watched recently that you would recommend to us. And then we'll okay. maybe share some too. Well, I watch so much TV yes, same. Yes. and I read a lot of books. So I, I, can I do a couple? Yes, yeah, because, for sure. Okay. So um, just for books, I actually brought this one in because um, I would really highly recommend there's a book that's equal amounts silly and serious and it's called Hyperbole and a Half and it's this mm. blogger named Allie Broche. And I just have to show you the picture because oh, like nice. that <laughs> is, there's this character and this is herself <laughs> and it's just a really amazing 
um, book about just like childhood and growing up and sometimes like some issues with depression. Like it's just amazing. It's okay. hilarious. Like a laugh out loud book. Oh, and one. then for TV, my kids and I are watching uh, a lot of Parks and Rec these days. Yes. I also would recommend Lovecraft Country, although okay. I'm such a wimp that I don't like scary things. So I've spent most of the time under the covers watching my husband's face watching Lovecraft Country, <laughs> but it's really quite good. And um, the Great Pottery Throwdown. So like when oh, wow. things are stressful, when yeah. things are crazy, watching people throw pottery is absolutely <laughs> the most amazing thing in the whole world. It's on HBO Max. Sounds okay. like you're going to need a master class in pottery making and maybe pick that up after. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, so one show that Jen and I, Jen and I have been talking about, because there's a barbecue show on Netflix, similar, like a reality show competition thing. I don't remember oh, wow. the name. I'll have yeah, to put it in neither. the notes. But I it's so it. good. It's just like great personalities, so positive. It's like the kind of show where, you know, when they get uh, eliminated, everyone's crying and hugging. Oh, it's. That's exactly how the so Great Pottery positive. Throwdown is too. Like they're all so supportive. It's yeah. not like Survivor. Right. It's just like it's a fun thing. And at the end, there isn't even like a huge award. They win like a a, a ceramic vase. <laughs> what? <laughs> they it's can like make what that themselves. I know, but it's so it's so funny. <laughs> so the last thing I just bought a board game that's called Nope for President. And my husband and we love Parks and Rec also. And it's kind of like Cards Against Humanity, but you use Parks and Rec quotes. Oh, so that's like awesome. that's there's amazing. a card and I ha- we haven't played it yet, but there's a card that's like a scandal. And then you hold quotes from Parks and Rec and you play them and whoever has the best <laughs> response to the scandal. So I think we're going to play this weekend. That's awesome. Yeah. I almost wanted to have my sentence be, I like people places and things (laughs) (laughs) you gotta be careful we can actually edit that to become your response (laughs) (laughs) true story so so let's get serious um so you are a transplant hepatologist so how did you get inspired for this incredible job yeah so you know I did my residency at Seattle Children's in 2003, and that was where I met Karen Murray and Simon Horslin. And those were really the two individuals that um, piqued my interest. Like that was where I was like, I really want to do GI. And it's super cool that they're hepatologists and, you know, they do amazing things. And so when I went to Philadelphia for my fellowship, um, it kind of was solidified. So I did actually, you know, two years in the lab and did luminal research um, working with mice. And even though I liked that, I wasn't very good at it, but I really liked it. I was thinking about like different things that I wanted to do and the patients that I loved. So the patients that I really loved taking care of and the clinicians that I really loved working with um, were the hepatologists, you know, Liz Rand, Dave Coley, uh, Benita Kamath. And they were just just it's an amazing community. And when I was there was when I started attending a split meetings, which is the Society for Pediatric Liver Transplant. And when I went to those meetings, it was also just incredibly inspiring. Um, the amount of work and energy that was going into continuing to improve outcomes for children. As you know, we could devote an entire podcast series to liver transplant related topics. But today we'll start just with the basics and kind of what starts at the beginning. So what goes into the decision to transplant? When should the pediatric gastroenterologist start thinking about liver transplantation for a sick patient with liver disease? And how do you think about the indications for liver transplant? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the big picture is, right, you kind of zoom out and say, when do children get liver transplant? The vast majority, so I'd say about 75% of children who get liver transplant do have liver transplants for liver indications, acute liver failure, chronic liver disease, and that's inclusive of biliary atresia, alpha-1, um, cirrhosis of unknown etiology, autoimmune. And then you have a quarter of them that have either tumors or, like hepatoblastoma or um uh, metabolic inborn errors of metabolism, where the liver transplant is a cure for the disease, but a kind of we're replacing the the um, disease with another kind of disease state. So it's different for each of those categories. But if you're talking about children who have liver disease, um, referral has to do with you know somebody who's cirrhotic is when they start to decompensate often. They're having signs of jaundice or signs of portal hypertension, ascites, poor growth, um, and then there's a lot of considerations about access to transplantation of the of the time too. So sometimes I think it's often even when parents have questions about transplant is a good time to engage your transplant hepatologist, your transplant center around you to say like is it time to start having this conversation? Parents would like to know. They're kind of seeing the writing on the wall or you know like they're they're concerned about what their options will be if things get worse. And there's no problem in having even early referral and starting to establish a relationship in any child who has you know, cirrhosis or, or signs of irreversible liver disease. And then the other signs, you know, when we're talking about inborn errors or hepatoblastoma or cancer, it's always a risk benefit ratio. So when you make the decision to refer or you make the decision to transplant is when that risk benefit ratio falls into the realm of the benefit of transplants going to outweigh the risk. So when there's chronic liver disease, especially if there's, you know, progression, certainly if there's cirrhosis, getting people involved early, um, and then kind of going along that process. Exactly, exactly. And getting them involved or e- evaluating is never a, you know, automatically they're going to get transplanted because, you know, the way that we allocate organs is to children who have more serious illness first. And so the um, having the conversation, even the center can decide like, oh, right now might not be the right time, but we know it's going to happen in the future. So establishing this relationship and so that we meet each other now and not kind of in a flurry when things are getting more serious. In this time of coronavirus and with telemedicine being more readily available now, um, not every center has a transplant hepatologist. I mean, even Nationwide Children's, we just started doing transplants just a few years ago. Is that a modality that you're using to start meeting these patients or would you still prefer seeing them in person? So you can always have a consultation visit via telemedicine. And I think all of us now have the ability to do that depending on like state licensing and whatnot. We've always been really um, attuned to that out here in Seattle because we see patients from Alaska and Hawaii and Spokane and Oregon and Idaho. So um, we want to be able to have that access to us, a full evaluation, which includes, you know, imaging and meeting with a whole bunch of, you know, different people probably entails more of an in-person visit. But if you're talking about like, let's just have a talk or discuss this and have an evaluation and parents can ask their questions, I think that's totally, you know, telemedicine should be employed as much as as possible to meet the needs of our patients. Now that we've talked about the indications, how would you uh, think about the maybe absolute and relative contraindications to liver transplant? And, you know, my understanding is so some of that's medical, but some of that's also social and support. How do you think through that? 
Yeah. So, you know, the absolute contraindications uh, to liver transplant, they're very few and far between. Mostly that's when like when we can't help somebody with a liver transplant. And in fact, we would be prolonging a child's suffering. Then we would never do it. Relative contraindications include um, situations in which, you know, first of all, if they're actively septic, you know, you would actually be doing that patient a great disservice by giving them a huge amount of immunosuppression and doing transplant. So you don't want to decrease their chances of um, survival. When you get to the social side of things, you know, I think that you'll find some variability among centers about what they decide. But, you know, I strongly believe that um, the outcomes for transplant are so good now, so amazing that there's no question, right, that like a child who is dying from biliary atresia needs a transplant and their survival post transplant for biliary atresia is greater than 90% at, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. So if we're talking about that, there should be no um, social support issues that would preclude us from transplanting that child. We find the support. If that's not the right home for them, we find the, you know, the right home for them. Like that's, it shouldn't um, keep a child from an opportunity at life. You know, especially with all the discussion recently about social determinants of health and the, in, in the inequalities that exist in our system, you know, it's really the burden is on us to try to recognize that and address that. But, yeah, um, I feel very strongly about that. I feel very strongly about that. It's such a slippery slope. Like who gets to judge that, you know, right. and then especially in transplant, right? because you can back it up with this, like we are stewards of the organs. And I think pediatricians especially tend to be really hard on kids, strangely, right. <laughs> <laughs> about like what, what makes you, you know, quote unquote, deserving yeah. of a transplant. Like a, a child is born, we should transplant that child if the child needs a transplant. Right. I, I just, I, there's no question in my mind about that. I, not everyone may agree with me, but I think, you know, I, I think that that's, that would be a problem if we, de- if we talked about it that way. Yeah. Hmm. You know, when you think about how far liver transplants come over the course of the last few decades, the outcomes of liver transplant in children have improved dramatically. So what outcomes can we expect now for children undergoing transplantation? So if you look at just the pure numbers, you know, we do about 500, you know, between 500 and 600 transplants in children every year. And there have been more than 12,000 transplants done since the beginning. Like, you know, we're talking about the early 80s. And you're absolutely right in that outcomes have dramatically improved that t- from that time, mostly because of technical advances. You know, one, we can keep children alive on the, on the wait list a lot longer. We can support them with avenues like TPN. We can support them, you know, with plasmapheresis and dialysis if they're in liver failure. And so the point, we're trying to get to the point where they're not as sick when they go through the transplant. So then their recovery time isn't so um, so prolonged and they're not sustaining issues with that. And then technical advances with being able to give them different types of grafts, you know, cut down grafts or living donor or surgical planning. And then surgical complications are way down compared to where they used to be, but they still exist. I mean, there's some surgical complications that, you know, we continue to struggle with, but our survival is greater than 90% um, across the nation for patient and graft survival, meaning like the patient survives and the graft survives. But then we're looking at outcomes that are different than that, you know, life without complications, life without post-transplant cancer, life, you know, that is really productive and happy. And you had previously mentioned different indications for liver transplant. Does the outcome differ based on the indication for transplant? Slightly. So, you know, there, there's, if you talk about biliary atresia that never recurs in the graft, 
like that is the most excellent outcomes. We get like, you know, greater than 95% survival, patient and graft survival. If we're talking about um, inborn errors of metabolism, something like a urea cycle defect, uh, uh, um, organic acidemia, we know that we can't reverse you know, neurological complications that have occurred prior to the transplant, but we can halt neurologic progression post. But then there's also, you know, they can also have some kidney problems and they have remaining, some, in some of the disorders, they'll have remaining enzyme that will continue to cause them issues and, and that you have to um, follow. Those numbers are slightly, you know, worse. Acute liver failure, we know because of just how sick patients are when they go into it, is slightly worse. And then any disease that might recur in the graft, autoimmune, hepatitis, PSC, we'll see worse outcomes. Uh, hepatoblastoma, you know, as well sometimes because of just the, the simple, you know, patients have gone through more, you know, chemotherapy and issues before they've gone through transplant. But overall, um, we're seeing really good survival numbers across the board. Outcome has really progressed beyond just survival and, you know, patient and graft survival. And you mentioned some of those factors that, you know, play into what we now consider a more successful outcome. What are those other things that we're now striving for? Vicki Ying, um, who is just a trailblazer and had had created an outcome called that ideal outcome. And when I think about ideal outcome, I think about um, there is a camp in this area called Camp Corey where our um, children who have all sorts of chronic disease can go to this camp and um, have an amazing experience. But they also there also is a transplant week. And I went to this transplant week, you know, a few years ago and I saw the kids, you know, my, my patients, like out there riding horses, doing ropes courses, you know, just having fun and having the life that we would dream for them, right? When they're, they're sick in the ICU and you're like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? And they get transplanted. You know, the dream is that they have that life without complication, that they don't have to worry about it, that they don't have to think about it, you know? And so, that's what I think encapsulates uh, encapsulates Vicky's ideal outcome that she created this factor that is you know children who have normal liver enzymes who are living a life without um, a needing requiring another transplant without rejection without kidney issues and without um, the threat of cancer which is really for us post transplant lymphoproliferative disease um, that we see that in her study of I think of a ten year survivor survivors there was only a third of patients who had that ideal outcome. But I think that's what we should be striving for. And even beyond that, where we have lots, we have, so we have an immune immunosuppression withdrawal trial um, uh, led by leaders in the field that has looked at what happens, what kind of children can come off of immunosuppression, because a lot of complications post-transplant have to do with immunosuppression. And what are the criteria for doing that? And how do we think about that? And so the future is a life free from disease burden. Right. Right. That's what we really just want to strive for. So let's go back a little bit. So we have a patient now that we are really thinking needs to be evaluated for transplant. So before you make that decision, if this patient is eligible, um, what does the evaluation entail? So the evaluation is pretty much the same. These are pretty st much standard. Um, and I think partially, partially because of UNOS and CMS requirements of that we are required to um, have a number of different team members talk to the family. So usually it's a two-day visit. 
and with appointments scheduled in those two days. They include um, counseling appointments with a hepatologist, a transplant surgeon, our social worker, pharmacist, um, nursing teaching that goes through the entire process. And typically the families will get a binder. There's this kind of legendary transplant binder that families will get. And that has all of the information in it. Um, there are now more kind of web-based you know, liver transplant evaluation journeys, things like that, that we're trying to create so that families can do more of this and share more of that, in fact, with caretakers and, and other people in the family before they come. But that's kind of the beginning where we talk about, we talk with a family about what is this evaluation process? What is selection? You know, how do we decide on a donor? What are the different donor options? You know, what does life look like after, you know, transplant? How do you go back to school? Like all of these things are entailed in that. And then we have the laboratory um, evaluation and imaging evaluation. So you have labs that you need to get to make sure that we are, you know, doing the right matching, that they have the right amount of immunizations to protect them both before and after transplant. And then we do imaging to say, like, what are the different considerations? You know, you have to sew in the liver in four different places. What are we talking about here? So that so that our surgeons can properly do surgical planning and discuss all the options that include technical variants and living donors and maybe even kind of extended criteria donors. Typically, at the end of that process, families are pretty exhausted. <laughs> so kind of, you know, preparing them for that. And I think urging programs more and more to say, how can we chunk this out into, you know, virtual sections or yeah. things that they can watch a video on, hit the pause button on? Because sometimes you see them at the end of two days. I see them, like, I can see them in the beginning or the end of the two days, and they can be totally glazed over because we've given them so much information that time and they're exhausted. I mean, I think that's why the uh, legendary binder, you know, yeah, they're, 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 they come with their binders. <laughs> These families are amazing. They come with their binders. And some have kept those binders for years and years and years. You had mentioned immunizations. And uh, my understanding is that there's some variation in immunizations people do, like require before and after. Well, and plus, yeah. you know, pediatric patients can have transplantations at any time. And sometimes yeah, it's yeah. before they've had the opportunity to receive live vaccines. So I mean, the you... majority of them, right? Mm -hmm. So if more than half, a little bit over half of all of our transplants are done for biliary atresia, we're not waiting until a year of age, right? Yeah. Like they're tiny. Yeah, right. So um, Amy Feldman is the one, she's at Denver Children's. She's the one who's done the majority of the work on vaccinations in uh, children who require transplant and after transplant. And there is a high amount of variability. Not, I'm mean, not high. I mean, I think that the main controversies are, one, how good are programs at getting the children the vaccinations that they, you know, need to get, that they're on time to get before? Because these are often children that are coming in, they're often sick, you know, back and forth through the hospital, and they miss getting, you know, two, four, six month um, immunizations. And then there's the issue of who gets live vaccines after transplant. Now, here in Seattle, we've seen, you know, quite a few measles outbreaks because we are a, a, a quite under immunized um, part of the country. But um, we when I was in Philadelphia and I, you know, my colleague, Simon Horsman, who had previously been in Nebraska, they had always done live vaccines post-transplant for a certain subset of patients who um who meet a certain criteria. So let's say for us, it's, you know, one year post-transplant, they have one immunosuppressant only at certain levels and they haven't, you know, suffered from additional things that make us worry about their immune systems. And then they get, you know, the live vaccines because most of them can't get them before transplant. We don't have time to do it. Right. 
I wonder if you could also talk to us a little bit about COVID-19 and how you prepare patients who have undergone transplantation and what advice you might have for them as we're thinking about development of a new vaccine and how they should consider potentially uh, getting that when it's available. Yeah. So if you think about, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the way that they are formulating um, vaccine against it, none of the vaccine options are currently live, I think. Um, and I say this, my husband's a PEDS-ID doctor, so I often will ask him <laughs> about these questions <laughs> to the point that he's like, oh my gosh. So thinking about the vaccine question, you know, obviously it has to be demonstrate safety and efficacy, but I'm a strong proponent of all of our liver transplant patients getting every single vaccine they can. One, you know, and, and even live vaccines, because I have very low faith in the herd at this point, um, being able to protect them. So any vaccine that they can get that is that we know to be safe, they should get. The issue is they often are not as reactive to vaccines and doesn't provide them a sufficient immunity. And that would be the question of like what, no matter, depending on what kind of immunosuppression they're on, how effective are these vaccines? With regards to COVID-19 and precautions for COVID-19, it's interesting. We did a survey of our families to ask them, like, how are they coping in general? And a lot of them have undergone um, you know, essentially quarantine around the time of their transplant anyway. So a lot of them were like, it's no big deal. Like they, you know, they are used to it and they have been through it before. We did do, you know, there's a parent uh, family engaged partners group, part of split and there's transplant families. And the amazing part of being out part of these, other, all these organizations is uh, talking to patients and families about what they want and what their needs are. So very early on in the pandemic, um, they had arranged for us to do a panel just to talk about COVID-19, to talk about returning to school. And the American uh, Society of Transplantation created a document that was a return to school document that a number of different organizations, including split and, um, and I think that NASPGAN sign on to it as well to say like, these are the things that we would recommend about isolation and social distancing. And of course, a lot of it was generic, you know, our patients should be socially distanced, but I think all of us should be socially distanced um, in these times and, and be masking. So you mentioned Split a couple of times, and so you're part mm -hmm. of the leadership of Split. Can you tell us a little bit more about Split and what its mission is? And Yeah. So, um, you know, probably only second to NASPGAN. Split is my favorite organization. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that. Uh, it was started about 25 years ago. So Split was started. And at the time it was started, it was um, called Studies in Pediatric Liver Transplantation. And it was started 25 years ago by Sue McDermott and Sammy So on the premise that just even the largest pediatric liver transplant um, center is doing no more than 50 a year. And so bringing everyone together to share our knowledge um, has, has, was what started the studies. And so they started a registry and it was from that registry that the pediatric end-stage liver disease score, the score upon which we use to um, allocate organs was created to kind of predict uh, mortality. Uh, but they also brought together the community. And it's gone through different phases. There was a phase in which there was an NIH-sponsored part of the registry trials. Um, but now it's become a fully incorporated society, Society of Pediatric Liver Transplant, that has a mission of improving outcomes in children receiving liver transplant through research, quality improvement, education, uh, training, mentorship, and patient advocacy. So we have a, a strong mission to just improve outcomes, and we do it through these different, um, different phases. You know, not every pediatric gastroenterologist has the same opportunities in training, for example, to 
to know if they want to do transplant hepatology. So for those who haven't listened to Jen Lightdale's episode, she does talk about how her initial interest was in hepatology. And when she was in her fellowship, there was no transplant surgeon. So that actually dissuaded her and moved her more to the lumen side. Uh, For trainees or any of us who are inspired by this episode and talking to you now um, and might be contemplating following your footsteps as a transplant hepatologist, how would they go about doing that? And what is an extra transplant hepatology year like? Well, I love that question because part of the mission of the Split Education Committee, currently headed by Amy Feldman and Saeed Mohammed, um, is to bring together like training opportunities. Like how do we, one, talk about transplant ears? Because if you're not at a center that has a transplant ear or does transplants, how would you even know if this is something that you're interested in doing? So, you know, even though we were talking in round split, this is, it's like preaching to the choir. We're like, oh, we have a training year. Yes, of course you have a program. So it's this big echo chamber that we're not really getting out to the wider community of like, what does it mean to serve the mission of taking care of transplant patients, children who need transplants? So, um, they're right now. So it's in the beginning, there were something like, you know, when I did my transplant training year, there wasn't even an ACGME accredited fellowship year. So, you know, you had to qualify by taking care of a certain number of uh, transplant patients and doing a certain number of things that were aligned with the United Network for Organ Sharing, which is the agency that oversees all transplantation in the United States. So they have requirements for primary um, hepatology person, so primary director of liver uh, transplant physician. And we want to align the training requirements with um, that that's required to actually lead a transplant program from an administrative standpoint. And so in the beginning, there was, I think, um, UCSF had had a program in Chicago were the first two. And then Philadelphia, you know, Boston uh, started developing programs. And then after that, I think, you know, here at Seattle Children's, we were the eighth program in the country. Now there are 17 ACGME approved fellowship programs. And the way that you become ACGME fellowship approved, you have to do a certain number of transplants per year to allow for the adequate training of your of your um, hepatology fellow. So, you know, the programs now um, uniformly pro- pro- provide trainees the, um, the training that's required to become a transplant hepatologist. And you apply now, we, um, it used to be, kind of way back when, and this, this denotes my age, like way back when, even when we did GI fellowship, it, what, there was no match. So you'd get a call at like, if you lived on the West Coast, it would be at 4 a.m. from the East Coast programs being oh, like, we're going to offer you a spot. You have 45 minutes to decide. Oh my goodness. <laughs> they still do and that in was- informatics, by the way. <laughs> and it's it's chaos, yeah. right? Common it's offer. not good for applicants. Right. I think that's we needed a system that was going to be better for applicants. So as there were more and more hepatology programs, the 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 system became a little bit more confused. Some people were interviewing in April and offering their spots in July. Some people were interviewing, you know, like and so it was just again not good for the applicants. Yeah. And so the education committee of split came together to say, what should we? What can we do to make this better? And even though match and ARIS and NRMP are not perfect, I think they are better for the applicants. Mm-hmm. And so we entered um, the match as a as or we all kind of had agreed a certain majority of us would would enter the match so that we would have interviews. But it's still like a little bit more limited. 
us to, and I think it's partially because we're not kind of out there saying like, these are these programs, you know, promoting um, hepatologies. Part of the reason that I wanted to be um, talking yeah. about it today to right. say, to talk about what the year would be like. And if you talk about like what a year is like, like I love my, my hepatology training year might've been my very favorite training year of like all of my training. <laughs> and even though it's kind of insane to do, you know, I was joking you do a seventh year of training. It's like the the equivalent of a neurosurgery right. residency. So like you might as well be a neurosurgeon. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like when you're going up to PGY seven, um, it's it's definitely it's a commitment, but it is it was such a fun year. And especially in Philadelphia, like I you get to see things that are so different. You work with the transplant surgeons more, you're going on procurements, you're, you know, and procurements are when you're going out to get the organ. You know, I there is one particular story that I talked about on the last podcast I was on where I had to go to Hershey, Pennsylvania in a limo oh. with the transplant fellow to wow. do the procurement. And I thought I was gonna be back like you know, really early. And so I told my husband, I was going to be four hours and he actually had a vasectomy scheduled that day. And so like, and I didn't get back until past midnight, <laughs> we had another kid, we had two kids at home. Oh, and man. anyway, that, that whole story is on another podcast. I won't get into it. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but wait, why the limo? Like, well, they need story? a way to transplant, transport you. Yeah. And if you have a limo, you can put all of those boxes of preservation solution oh, and things okay. that you need with yeah. you. But it's very surreal, like me and this transplant <laughs> fellow in, in the on the Schuylkill with our organs, like running swap around. out it the was, champagne. Yeah, right. the- <laughs> we were like, "What do we do with this? Like, let's put that back away. Put we'll the champagne working. in the back. Yeah, yeah." So it's such a fun year of just very, very solid, like hepatology learning. The other thing that the split education committee is doing is setting up uh, a series of standard lectures Mm -hmm. that we will give, you know, to, to any, any one of the trainees that is at any of these programs. You know, if I was not, if I was at a program that didn't have much exposure to transplant uh, hepatology, I mean, what are the options for those fellows to get more exposure? Like you think like doing like a a way rotation or... Um, yeah, so you could do an away rotation or you could just interview at the time, you know, yeah, you could apply yeah. and interview. And I would definitely, definitely recommend joining the Society of Pediatric Liver Transplant, which is now under the Transplantation Society. And it's a pretty nominal fee um, just for trainees. And then you have access, right, to all of the lectures, all of the people. You could join a committee, you know, and just reach out to people. Um, these are programs, we're all programs where, you know, there, there are typically fewer people that um, want to train in a transplant hepatology year um, compared to the number of spots that are available. Yeah, okay. And that's been pretty standard. And as programs develop more and more fellowship programs, as GI programs develop more and more fellowship programs in hepatology, it becomes just this extra year that is an opportunity, but not in fact like something that we expect to fill every year. Mm. I think both Jen and I did an extra... I did yeah. an extra too many years. Yeah, you did, did two you? years. What did you do your extra years in? So, um, so I did uh, clinical informatics, which is two oh, nice. additional years. Yeah. But then with the babies that I had in my GI fellowship and my chief year, I was a PGY 10 for one month. <laughs> <laughs> That's legendary. So if I called my husband and I was like, hey, I want to do transplant hepatology year, he probably would just... I don't even yeah. know, but he was a PGY. So fun. He did PGY. He did nine years also because he's oh adult yeah, he's got nothing on you. So like, yeah, you know. bring it on, oh, man. So I, so my my wife is a uh, facial plastic surgeon, and their training was six years, 
So she always makes fun of me for doing ex for doing longer training mm. than her to make a fraction of the salary of what she makes. <laughs> well, you got to do what you love, exactly. right? Like that's, that's the thing. Oh, I yeah. I used to I used to joke that I was doing all of this extra training to only limit myself to you know being able to live in four urban areas. <laughs> oh yeah, right. <laughs> but it's worth but it. You, you got to do what you yeah, love. Yeah. So. The caveat to that is that there's no problem in having more expertise. Yeah, that's true. You can go and practice anywhere. Right. One of my prior mentors where I trained uh, was Dennis Black. He was the director of the Transplant Center in Chicago very early on with Peter Whittington. Mm. And like, even though, I mean, he's near, I don't know, he must be near retirement now, but he just talked so lovingly about his time in transplant. And like, I don't know, it just, it's, it was, it was really inspiring. (laughs) Nothing beats it. I mean, I think it's the drama, right? Like we're all in GI. We love drama. The drama (laughs) of watching a child at the brink of death get grabbed back. Like you grab that child back from the jaws of death and you've like the miracle of transplantation, how much better they get, like, and you know, what you can give them afterwards, there is nothing like that. And of course we don't always win. Like we don't always have that win, but even when we don't like to be with families and the relationships that we develop with them, like to the privilege of being with them in that time there, I, I think there's nothing better. So when we treat someone's constipation, it also feels like a big win. But, um, <laughs> it is. I think I dramatic. love constipation. I'm not saying I don't love no, constipation. I love constipation. <laughs> no, stool accidents are a pretty, pretty big deal. I'm still a <laughs> All right. So everyone go sign up for your transplant hepatology extra year. Yeah. You know, we did a survey of all of our graduates, you know, across all of the centers to ask them, you know, one, were they what were they practicing now? Were they mostly practicing hepatology or were they practicing a mixture? And there's a mixture. There's some people who are practicing only hepatology. There are some people who are, you know, doing mostly, you know, general and they have the hepatology ear under them. And then the the other more important question was, you know, would they recommend doing this ear for, you know, somebody who is who is coming out of fellowship? And And uniformly, they did recommend doing it, you know, partially because it's such an interesting ear and you develop these and, and acquire skills that you wouldn't otherwise have had. I mean, especially because recently I feel like there's been a lot of, uh, you know, discussion about, you know, is it really worth doing an extra year with the medical student debt that we, you know, that we have and all this stuff. But, you know, like you're saying, I think a lot of people who did advanced training would highly recommend it to others and it's completely worth the time. So, Okay. A couple questions that we ask everybody. And as you mentioned in your journey to becoming a transplant hepatologist, some mentors that played a big role in your career. So what's, what do you think is the best advice you've received in your career thus far? And what advice do you have for trainees and junior faculty? I think, you know, I'm thinking about the advice, the advice that I received and that I would give is that you got to love what you do and do what you love. You know, not necessarily in that order, but both of those things are really important. We have all of these, um, you know, the, the next generation, our new generation of providers, we have a lot of different obligations. We often have, you know, spouses who are working as physicians. We have children. We have parents that we're caring for. The work that we have to do has to mean so much to us to leave that, to do that, and then to come back and give back to, you know, um, the things outside of our work as much as they, as we can, and, and to ourselves, right, to take care of ourselves so that we can do this important work. So I think, you know, 
that has more or less driven everything I do. You know, believe in what you do and do what you believe in. I love that. It's beautiful. (laughs) It's very beautiful. You know, this has just been a really, really lovely discussion and um, kind of wishing I would have had this discussion years ago. Maybe I would have gone into transplant. I don't know. But I just I think that this has just been incredible. I mean, I can feel the passion coming from you through our Zoom screen as we're discussing this. Um, As we're closing out the podcast, do you have any final words for our listeners? I just am so happy to be here. You know, I, I'm so excited about our community. I'm so excited about the direction that we're going in and about, um, about this podcast, about the opportunity to, you know, to, to be more in touch with, with all of our, um, PGI colleagues and, you know, really aim towards this mission of improving the lives of children. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much again for joining us. This is wonderful. All right. we'll keep in touch. Thanks guys. It was so cool to meet you. All right. See Take ya. care. That was pretty great. Pretty exciting. But I'm not going to go back and do an extra year in hepatology. But I do encourage any of the fellows that are listening to really consider it. It sounds like it's a very rewarding career and you can really make a big impact in people's lives. Yeah, I agree. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there is a link to support the show by making a donation to NASPEGIN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspghan.org. And the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPEGIN Foundation is doing, including pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Bye.